Welcome to the EverSeline podcast, the show that ignites your passion for leadership and empowers you to develop a culture of continuous improvement. I'm your host, Matt Sims, and in each episode, we bring you fascinating insights and invaluable tips from our incredible lineup of guests. What do they all have in common? They share an unwavering dedication to excellence and are the experts in driving engagement, improving metrics, and reducing costs. The Ever So Lean Podcast with Matt Sims. You know it makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Consulting Limited. Catalyst Consulting exists to help people and organisations work better today and be ready for tomorrow. They have a rich history of igniting business transformation using business agility, lean, Six Sigma, strategy deployment, agile and change management. They can help you and your organisation to develop the skills necessary to work and manage differently. To find out more, check out catalystconsulting.co.uk. Today on the Ever Celine podcast, we're joined by a true powerhouse in the world of mental health, well-being and resilience. And what makes this episode even more remarkable is that our guest is speaking to us all the way from beautiful Sydney, Australia. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce the one and only Bill Carson. Now, Bill is not just a professional. He's a visionary leader who has made it his life's mission to affect change and make a lasting impact in the field of mental wellness. As an accomplished author, a creative speaker, a compassionate facilitator and a transformative coach, he has dedicated his entire career to helping individuals, companies and communities overcome the complex challenges of mental health issues. His commitment is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Bill has empowered countless individuals to cultivate the skills and strategies necessary to enhance their empathy, elevate their mental and emotional well-being and construct an unshakable foundation of resilience. Bill's reputation really does precede him. He's a sought-after luminary in the fields of mental health, resilience and mindfulness, but his dedication doesn't stop there. Bill has volunteered over 650 hours as a Lifeline Volunteer Telephone Crisis Supporter, demonstrating his passion for helping others is not confined to the professional realm. Recently, he added author to his list of accomplishments with the release of his book, Safe Conversations for Work and Life. This book provides invaluable insights on how to have meaningful conversations about mental health and well-being, conversations that make a profound difference to somebody's life. In this episode, Bill will offer a wealth of insights. He provides practical tips for incorporating mindfulness into your daily routine, helping you stay present and grounded. You'll gain fresh perspectives as Bill explores the dynamics of empathy versus sympathy, shedding new light on these critical concepts. He equips you with invaluable strategies for managing stress and warding off burnout, all aimed at enhancing your mental and emotional well-being. And for managers, Bill offers guidance on recognising and supporting team members' mental health challenges through empathy. This episode really does cover various aspects of personal and professional development, including the impact of change management on human beings. Bill's expertise will leave you better equipped to navigate these essential areas. So get your notebook out and expect some actionable insights and skills, all delivered in the expert tones of Mr. Bill Carson. Bill, welcome to the Eversaline podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Matt. That's a 
Outstanding introduction. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> you need a massive roar and a round of applause as you walk on stage. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> but it's all true. You've got a, a fantastic reputation. And in doing the research for the show, I've done lots of Googling of your name uh, and found some fascinating articles and bios about yourself that I've read and really, really enjoyed. And I've also read the first two chapters of your book, Safe Conversations for Work and Life, which was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, it's uh, lovely. It's uh, lovely to be with you. And this is a topic that, as you can tell, I'm hugely passionate about. And, and I want to uh, support you and your listeners to get value from, um, from what we talk about today. And it's a real good fit as well, as we were saying just now, that change management in particular is quite an emotive subject. You know, people going through change, it can be really challenging. So I think understanding what that entails and thinking about the individual and the human being behind the change is so important. Mm -hmm. So this whole topic of change really, you know, fascinates me. And one of the really interesting distinctions is that when change is stimulating, we don't mind. So the change of going on a holiday, to be stimulated, to see new environments, change, change me, like get me out of my work and home and happy days. <laughs> One of the big issues that a lot of people resist change at work is that it's not stimulating. It's like really imposing and it's like, oh my goodness, why am I doing this? And I had the experience yesterday one of the organisations I work with is Mental Health First Aid Australia, and I've run, you know, over 250 mental health first aid accreditation workshops. Anyway, they've done a major upgrade on their system. And as we know, you know, major upgrades on systems, what's going to happen when they, you know, reboot it and, you know, let's get going? It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and guess what? So I go to log in and uh, it doesn't accept my login. And, you know, it's, uh, and then um, recreate password, try to recreate password, doesn't recreate password. Now, I immediately had the not uncommon stress reaction of, you know, I won't actually say what I felt, <laughs> <laughs> which was, oh, here we go, you know, bloody blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was, I was noticing my negativity. And one of the things I've been practicing for quite some time is there's, uh, um, amongst many methodologies from cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, is a, a methodology called cognitive reframing. And I kind of, or sometimes referred to as cognitive reappraisal, I, I tend to, my own version is, as I call it, positive reappraisal. And I'll give you a bit of context for how it works and uh, Matt, do you have do you have children? Yes, I do. Okay, and um, so imagine your five year old, and and I, I, our son Richard is twenty seven, and a classic scenario is when Richard was five, you know, and just younger, he'd love to go to the two dollar shop, you know, because there'd be things in there, you know, like a boy wanting to buy things, so we'd buy one thing, and then you know, one's not enough, you know, then he's got to have another and another. Anyway, so he'd see something and he'd be, and I'd say, no, Richard, we need to leave. And he'd be on the verge of then throwing a tantrum, as any healthy young child would do. And what I'd do is, and you've probably done this as well, like lots of parents, is you then do a sudden pattern interrupt and redirect his attention. And then I'd head towards the, the door and go, Richard, 
have a look at this. Yes. And then I'd grab him and then head out the door. <laughs> and then we'd get outside and then redirect his attention again. And it's like, oh, look at the truck. And, you know, so, so, so shifts his little brain being stuck on the upset. <laughs> yes. Am I making sense? Have you done kind of similar things? Absolutely. Yes, I do. Although, funny enough, it, my wife does that to me when I'm in the shop that sells like TVs and things like that. <laughs> She's trying to divert my attention out the store. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of kind of ways it can be done. So as a, as a way to do that for, for us as adults, amongst many, many things, is a strategy I learned uh, quite some time ago, which is in, in that experience of the frustration, then I just suddenly do a total pattern interrupt positive reappraisal. And I responded with, I just, you know, said, how good is this? <laughs> you know, the frustration of the yeah. damn thing, you know, won't accept my new password. How good is this? Now, <laughs> at, at some level, you know, intellectually, it's like, oh, this is absolutely bloody ridiculous, you know. But here's the reason why it works is because what it does is it immediately shifts our mental and emotional state. And in a sense, the whole context of like, how good is this actually kind of stimulates the, and it shifts more to the right hemisphere of the capacity to kind of start to see some capacity for positivity in the experience. And, and sometimes a lot of people who are really stuck on negativity, they don't like doing this kind of stuff because they think that it's just Pollyanna-ish and doesn't solve the problem. But the reality around vast amounts of research is that when we shift mentally and emotionally, and particularly sort of more and accessing out of the left hemisphere into the right hemisphere, more of the positive thoughts and feelings, we actually uh, then bring more of a whole brain capacity rather than just a half brain capacity to actually then think more effectively about the, you know, the complexities of, of what we might be experiencing. And what I noticed is I then thought to myself, oh, okay, look, you know, typical, you know, frustrating at the moment, but then I future paced, look, uh, when this is up and running, probably in a week's time when I'm good to go in two weeks time. This will be like totally natural. This is the best thing they've ever done. This is, you know, fantastic. And then that just immediately shifted my emotional state. I wasn't as grumpy uh, about it anymore. Had a better <laughs> attitude and, you know, things moved on positively. They made phone calls, had a conversation, sent me emails, and, and now we're moving in the right direction. Does that work the same? So say that you was a leader on the shop floor and you'd introduce something new and, and it was a, an employee that was having the issues logging in. As the leader, if you were to stand there and sort of portray that onto them and go, if it was going wrong, go, oh, this is really good. You know, this does this, that. Is it the same effect? Does it work the same way? No, look, there's a lot of sophistication and complexity and change. And one of the really fundamental themes that um, has to be really understood both at a personal level and at a corporate level, is the four W's. And this came from originally from the work of a woman by the name of Bernice McCarthy, uh, who applied this in a learning context. But it's also really relevant both from a change, learning, communication context. So the four W's are why. Why are we doing this and what's in it for me? Number two is what are we doing? What are we changing? Number three is how, how is the change going to take place? And number four is the what if and what else. And what happens that screws up a lot of all, uh, uh, change. And a classic example, I've worked with a lot of sales teams and um, they introduce Salesforce. Salesforce is, you know, amongst many CRMs is a very, very good one, but it's very complex. 
And so if you're, um, you know, classically old sales organization, you've kept all your information on cards and things like that, you know where to find it, everything's fine. Anyway, the, um, the gurus, the sales leaders, they either come across it or their competitors use it, et cetera, et cetera. So they figure out the why, and there's a really strong business case for them, a very strong why, and it's very stimulating for them because if they get like Salesforce in place, operating beautifully as Salesforce leads them to believe, and it's all done uh, fantastically, then it's very stimulating for them because A, they'll hit their targets, they'll get their bonuses and happy days. So their why is, is very, very strong. And then invariably what they'll do is they'll then say, this is what we're doing. We're now introducing Salesforce. And then when people go, well, hang on, like why? And what's in it for me? Why am I going to have to grind through this whole thing? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, you just need to do it. And so that's a big one that gets missed. Then, okay, here's the what. The other biggie then is how. How are we going to introduce it? You know, what about this? What about that? And what often then gets interpreted is with quadrant four, when people start asking about the what about this and what about that, very negative, you're not being cooperative. It's like people have to ask questions. They have to have their feelings listened to and heard and validated. Uh, and, and, and so there's a real immaturity often in working through change and dealing with these things and making it really clear as to why we're doing it. Yeah. Do you know what? I'm thinking back now to some of the, the projects that I've done in the past where we've introduced change. And sometimes as somebody who's leading change, you can get so swept up in the physical project itself and the deliverables and the timelines and the commitments you've made to the, the senior bodies sitting upstairs in, in the boardroom that you go down on the shop floor and it's just about getting it in and getting it going. You really do overlook the individuals that are working in that area. You know, sometimes those people have been working in that role for a long time mm. and, you know, they might quite like the way they do it already. They might quite enjoy the role that they do that's very manual exactly. and physical. Yeah. And then we're going in there and saying, I don't really care about you. I don't really care what you think. I don't really care about how you've always done it. Now we're doing it this way. Get on with it. Exactly. And so now with all the work that I've been doing in mental health, there are significant mental health issues that are created by this poorly done change. So first of all, anxiety is highly correlated with uncertainty about the future. And so if people are really comfortable in their work, and then they're just, you know, as, as you were just saying there, Matt, where they are then being exposed to and encouraged and asked and expected to then go into this uncertain future, it's going to ratchet up their, their uncertainty, a la their anxiety. Now, if you're in a really good, healthy, mentally and emotionally healthy state, in other words, you know, life's good, you've got loving relationships and, you know, everything's fine, then happy days, you know, you kind of have the emotional energy to do it. But if you're like struggling, you know, your dad's unwell and kids are having a rough time at school and, you know, like in Australia recently, you know, when, when um, um, interest rates went started skyrocketing and if you just bought a house and leverage yourself crazily and then interest rates going through the roof, you start getting this huge amount of mental emotional pressure and then work is then going to impose all this additional pressure on. So our bandwidth, our, our resilience, our emotional strength, fitness uh, to, to handle the change is, is really impacted. So that's part A, which is the uncertainty of the future. Depression is highly correlated with 
loss experiences with sadness and with grief. And so if you really loved your work and you were comfortable with it and you had a sense of accomplishment, then when change takes place, what will often happen is we, we have to let all that go and that, that there's, a, there's a certain sadness and grief that, that is associated with that, which often, again, just doesn't get understood, talked about, felt, uh, etc. So, so these uh, areas are really, really significant. Why do you think that is that we overlook that? Do you think that people deliberately overlooking that and not taking that mindfulness of what people are going through? Or do you think it's a skills and knowledge related issue where people just don't actually know and, and know how to deal with that kind of situation? Yeah, I'm tending to think that it's more the latter. And, and the reason is, is because my observation is that they're all across the planet. We, we really need to mature in terms of our capacity to deal with feelings. What I mean by this is that one of the things I've learned from my lifeline work is that looking after our self-care is incredibly important, um, you know, because in lifeline, sometimes some callers are in a really difficult place. And um, what will happen is because I'm doing the work of empathy, which I call compassionate empathy, I'll actually, you know, so compassion is, a Latin word is com with passion is pain. So when I'm with their pain, then as a normal human being, I will feel some of that and potentially get emotionally triggered or did I, you know, technically did I handle that the right way? So in the early years, it doesn't happen much for me these days because I'm very experienced. In the early years, then I could, at the end of the call, take off the headset, go and talk to the supervisor so I could debrief my feelings. And what I've learned then over the years is that I've become much more emotionally stronger, fitter, and more mature. By comparison, I was talking about this some time ago in a workshop I was running, and a guy uh, was in the workshop and he'd been in the police force in, in Australia. And he said that in all the years that he was in the force, you know, back in those days, and it's possibly a bit different, he could never talk about his feelings. And he'd see some really difficult situations, couldn't talk to his partner, could be too horrific for them, couldn't talk to it at work because like, mate, you've got to man up and not, you know, connect with your feelings. And, and this is incredibly naive because when we can talk about our feelings and just be heard, listened to and validated, which is kind of one of the key themes of my book, Safe Conversations, that what happens is that we, we actually have an opportunity to actually self-regulate our emotions, feel heard and listened to, and, you know, we get stronger. So if we are more aware of the whole feelings component, you know, so at the moment we talk about mental health. Well, no human being on the planet ever has thoughts without feelings. They just go together. So we fundamentally should be talking about mental and emotional health because the two of them fit together. And, you know, when, when, when change takes place, when we have conversations, we have feelings and validating feelings and allowing feelings to be heard, listened to and, and understood. And, you know, we get mature and smarter around our feelings, then we get better. So I think, Matt, the issue there is not so much that it's an issue of you know, there's a bit of the, uh, the, the the English, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, don't talk about your feelings kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> it was an interesting analogy towards the beginning of your book. You spoke about how if you've got a bust knee, if you've got a, a knee and you've had an operation on your knee and you've got a knee brace on or whatever, people are really sympathetic and you're like, yeah, I've got a bad knee. I can't play tennis or I can't play a sport. But if it's mental health and well-being, you don't talk about it. You shy away from it. You feel like there's a stigma there that you can't yeah. talk about it. 
This is particularly relevant for males more often than not because males from a young age are often, and it's changing in both your culture and ours, that you know, parents these days are often encouraging their young males to to be connected with their feelings a, a little more. And 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 so um, when I run men's groups, then you put a group of guys together, and it's just totally safe to open up and talk about how you're feeling. And there's no judgment, no point of view, no mate, you should do this, and what's the matter with you, etc. When it's just totally okay to talk about our feelings, then we do that, and we can just feel safe. Uh, in talking about our feelings. But what often happens with males in, in, in the broader culture, there's this kind of whole perception of weakness. So a way to understand this is, so if you go back to what, I, what we just touched on there. So back in 2018, the end of 2018, I busted my knee in a surfing accident and uh, tore the uh, ACL pretty badly, damaged the meniscus and the MCL, and I was in a lot of pain. Now, what happens when we um, injure, you know, our various extremities and stuff like that, so we'll have the pain, but then the thing is that what we don't do is that I didn't attach my identity as a, a male because I had pain and therefore I was feeling weak. I then didn't attach my identity, therefore I am a weak man because i am got this pain. Now, that problem that happens when we experience emotional pain and lost experiences from a relationship breakup or, you know, the loss of someone close to us dying, and we've, we're hurting from that loss, you know, with the, with the pain. And, and particularly when a male maybe got a lot of underlying trauma, they've got a, what I call an internalizing stress reaction style, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, and they go to a place of you know, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, people would be better off without me. When feeling that pain, what the problem is, is that it gets attached to our identity, I think, and it's, I'm feeling this pain, therefore I feel weak, therefore I'm a weak man, and therefore I can't talk about it. I've always suffered with mental health, I've always had issues, and I can trace it right back to the moment that it started in my childhood where I had a traumatic experience, and, mm. and I know where it came from, and I, I've kind of learned over the years that it's part of me and that's who I am mm. and I've accepted it. But I've always been very open about it. So I'm I'm very happy to talk about my mental health issues, my anxieties, my stresses. And I actually find talking about it makes me mm. feel so much better, especially when I, I bring it up around people. Say I've just met somebody, I, well, not in the supermarket, I don't wonder, I'm going, excuse me, by the way, you have mental health <laughs> issues like me. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm open about it. If I get to talking to somebody and, and something comes up around it, I'll talk about it. And do you know what? Nine times out of 10, when I do that, the other person will then turn around and mm -hmm. let on that they have similar issues around anxiety or stress. Yet you would never know it looking at them. You would never be able to tell and they would never bring it up. But because I've brought it up and shown that little bit of, of weakness is the wrong word, but I've shown that little bit of, you know, behind the curtain of me, they then do the same. And I, I like to encourage that because it does help me. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so that's another theme that I talk about in, in my book. And that is that one of the things I think is really important for us to, all of us as you know, as humans, adults, particularly to be mindful of is this whole question of, am I safe to talk to? And essentially, what you do when you're willing to be, you know, often referred to as vulnerable, you know, that's Brene Brown's kind of um, message, 
my version would be when you're feeling authentic, you know, so you're not comfortable about sort of talking about the authenticity of who you are without all, all the ears and graces. One is you've developed the capacity to feel a sense of safety in when you're sharing and you've learned to be respectful of who might be able to receive it because it can be pretty challenging. But then what you do is because you actually lead with your own authenticity, then you're actually therefore sending a signaling that I'm safe if you want to open up and talk about your own experience. And, um, you know, and that's, that's wonderful. It's a really good thing. Good on you. I used to think, right, I was spreading anxiety because everyone I would get to know after a few weeks, they would tell me they had anxiety. And I would feel like it was me portraying it onto them all the time. Without them knowing, I was making them anxious. And then in later years, I realized it's not me spreading it around. It's actually quite a common theme. And just me talking about it enabled them to feel the confidence to be able to open up and discuss it. And I've had it in, you know, in professional environments as well. As a leader of people for many years, my team, I've always found, are very open to come to me and say, look, Matt, I'm suffering at the moment. Things are really hard at home. I'm, I'm feeling really worked up and stressed. Um, I've got these symptoms. I've been to the doctor and I've been able, because of my experiences, I've been able to say, do you know what? I totally get it. What works for me is this. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And I've been able to manage their workload and, and them yeah. as individuals because of that. Exactly. But somebody who's never experienced that, being a leader of people, that must be a really difficult thing because someone comes to you, you've got no experience of dealing with it, you've never felt it yourself. Someone comes to you and goes, I'm having a hard time at home, not slept much, or you know, I'm feeling really wired and, and anxious. You know, some leaders who have never experienced it might turn around and go, Well, you know, that ain't my problem. You're here yeah. between nine yeah. and five, get on with the job I pay you to do. Exactly. And and you know, fundamentally that's got to change. And, you know, that's a, a, a big uh, skill set that I uh, teach in the workshops, the Safe Conversation Skills workshops. Because you see, the distinctions is you have, in, have inherently uh, a capacity for empathy and compassion for other human beings. And because you've done work on yourself, you had that self-awareness that you therefore created the safety for other people to come to you and talk about it. Now, managers who uh, kind of do the work they do because they love either being in control of other people, uh, getting a raise, getting KPIs, uh, very task-focused, they will often find this aspect of their people leadership quite difficult to do because one of the big challenges that they experience is manager brain solves problems. Manager brain tells people what to do. So when someone is presenting with challenges, uh, and this is a big, uh, really important skill for managers to be able to see the difference between personal issues versus performance issues and the manager being able to have uh, that conversation. When a manager can't, it's really unpleasant for the, the people. And in fact, there's legislation now that's going to change all that over time. But when a manager can do it, what I teach is you turn off manager brain. This is not your problem to solve. And it's a conversation that's very person-centered. And essentially what you're doing is that you're engaging in conversation with that person to help them develop their own self-awareness around what's happening for them and then therefore what resources would be most suitable. Now, one of the big distinctions that I make and then people really take away 
is a big distinction between the you and the I. And the big distinction for a lot of managers is that they think that they need to be uh, making I statements and sort of telling the person what to do or talking about their own experience. No, 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 no. You focus on the other person, you know, reflecting back feelings, uh, helping them to develop their own self-awareness, helping them to access their own resources, their own self-care, professional services, whatever. And then at some point, it might be useful to talk about one's own experience, but really that's not highly encouraged. Mm. You know, when you've got good relationships with people and good trust, then you might want to do the I, but generally it's about the you. You know, it's a soft you and it's not an accusing kind of you. Are you ready to elevate your team's ways of working? Are you seeking fresh insights and growth opportunities? Our experts will assess your team's practices, providing valuable insights for improvement and celebration. Reward and recognize your team with this certification tailored specifically for creating an improvement culture. The BQF Academy accreditation acknowledges your journey, outstanding outcomes and future plans. Whether you utilize Lean, Six Sigma, project management, or continuous improvement techniques, this certification celebrates your incredible work and positive impact. Propel your team's performance to new heights with the BQF Team Excellence Culture Certification. Visit www.bqf.org.uk today and let's celebrate your success together. 13-time single prize winner, Dr. Jeffrey Liker and Toyota Kata author Mike Rother have created the Improvement Kata and Coaching Kata online course. This inexpensive compact program is designed to transform your thinking and approach, making you a highly skilled learner and coach. Engage in deliberate practice to turbocharge your progress. You also get lifetime access to the materials, including all of the bonus interviews. Why pay up to 10 times the price elsewhere listening to some consultant when you can gain direct insights from the masters themselves? Skip the rest and go with the best. Join us today and embark on your journey to excellence. Just click on the link below to start your journey. There's a piece in the book that you mentioned about the manager doesn't need to be the problem solver. If someone's come up to you and told you that they've got issues and they've got problems and they and they need some support i think what you were getting at there is it's not for that manager to go i know all the answers you know i've suddenly become a gp a mental health practitioner i can solve you yeah the 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 better conversation would be inviting the person to have you know so so i so let's say, for example, we just kind of little mini skills practices, role played it. Yeah. And let's say you you came to me and said, "Look, I'm I'm really kind of struggling with some stuff at home. One of the kids is unwell. My dad's unwell, etc. It's really putting a lot of pressure on my mum, etc." Then the, the question I'd be asking you then is, "So tell me a bit more about you know what you've done so far. What resources have you got around you to support you? You know, so far in in terms of what you're doing." So let's do that. Okay. So then what will happen from that kind of question is, and I scale it in my head, let's say you might respond with, look, I've done nothing. I don't know what to do. You know, I've tried these sorts of things. And then I might ask, 
you know, because then I'd sort of go, okay, what might be, you know, what do you think would be really helpful for you right now? What do you think would be? So you see there, what I'm inviting is that the other person develops their own self-awareness before I start rescuing them, in a sense, with my I-ness as their boss. I see. Do you know what's really interesting is that approach is exactly what we encourage on a Gemba walk. So if you're going down onto the shop floor and you're doing a, a Gemba walk and you're talking to the people that actually do the work and you want to understand the problems in the workplace, you don't go down there and, and give closed questions. You go down there and say, talk to me about how you feel about what you're doing today. Talk to me about how that works over there. It's the same logic, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, a classic example is this one. And and Matt, have you ever experienced a, a situation where someone, maybe uh, your partner, has said to you, you're not listening to me? All the time, Bill. All the time. <laughs> it's common. <laughs> so it's probably, it's probably not uncommon for a few of your listeners as well. You're not listening to me. It's like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> And so the male brain will, you know, I heard what you said and processed it and I care about you, I love you and I can tell you got a problem and here's what you should do. You're not listening to me. What? I heard what you said. <laughs> and see, here's the massive error and this is a huge one that I think is incredibly important all over the world. <laughs> and because girls can sometimes do it to each other. It's the distinction between empathy and sympathy. So empathy is them pathy. So you know how we go, hold them, fold them, apostrophe. Uh, so think of it as them <laughs> pathy. So the pathy is from the uh, Greek word for pathos, meaning feelings. So it's empathy is them feelings. So being present with the other person's feelings. Sympathy is self pathy. So it's self feelings. And so... The thing that we have to be so mindful as, as humans, and this, this causes so many problems, is so let's say, for example, we go back to that scenario where your partner says, you know, I've had a bloody shocker of a day today. You know, all this was happening and, you know, I tried to talk to my boss about it. You know, he didn't follow up. And then I get home and the place is just an absolute mess and, and, and I'm just not happy. What happens is because, you know, we care about this person, we will feel their feelings. And then what happens is that if we're unconscious to noticing that, we feel the feelings, then we will, it'll fire up our stress reaction and our stress reaction will then be to either externalize our thoughts and feelings, our self feelings onto the other person and project onto them, you know, what they should do. So it could be some version of, we could externalize and tell them what to do because we're projecting and you know, being judgmental and attacking, or we do some version of I, or, you know, what are you telling me for? I can't handle this. And, you know, you think you've had a bad day? Then let me tell you about my day. <laughs> and and so self-pathy, self-feelings is, okay, stop, settle down those feelings, stay present with the other person's feelings, and then reflect back something like, you know, gee, darling, that's, sounds a shocker that sounds like you know it's been a really hard one for you you see so you reflect back their feelings you know with a gentle you and um what help would you need from me right now how could i help you and, and you stay present with the other person and not be dumping our our stuff onto the other person that takes such a presence of mind though doesn't it to do that 
You don't purposely go in there and go, as soon as you start telling me about you, I'm going to bring it straight back to me. It just naturally happens. So you really need mm. to stop yourself and think and to stay connected is quite a challenge sometimes. I mean, I, sometimes it goes in one ear and out the other for me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You see, it's it's natural, as you say, it's natural because it's it's a, an habituated reaction. You know, I'll, I'll give you another example. So uh, some time ago, I caught up with a friend of mine that I hadn't seen for quite a lot of years. And in the course of the conversation, he said to me uh, that his wife had died from cancer, from a, a long bout of cancer. And then my response was, you know, that must have been incredibly difficult for you to have experienced that and gone through it. And then, you know, the course the conversation continued. And he then said to me later on, he said, no one, no one has ever responded that way they always wow. respond with i am sorry for your loss i give you my condolences and so people kind of do the best they can they, they are being sympathetic self feelings with i statements but it just absolutely fundamentally disempowers the person you're having the conversation with because they've shared something that's really difficult for them and then we respond with an i statement Whereas if we reflect the feelings that, that they're probably experiencing, then that's, you know, that's really good listening, really good being present, really, mm. really, really good uh, communication skill. It's interesting because we, you know, we, I, I, <laughs> I think naturally that the, the natural thing to say if someone says something like that mm. is I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm really exactly. sorry. You think that's the yeah. right thing to say, yeah. don't you? No. But it's actually because not. You, because just now, right now as I was listening to you as you were saying that and, and, and I was thinking of myself in a situation where I shared something and then you respond with your I, then immediately it, it's gone to you and it's not about me anymore. Yeah. You know, it's not about the person. Oh, Bill, you, you've given me self-conscious <laughs> worry now. You've caused me health issues. I'm going to be worrying about when I speak. <laughs> so interesting. There's so much behind yeah. it all, isn't there? Yeah. And, and so the, then as we tie this back into, you know, managers, so and that conversation, so, so an empathy response to the person that has the trust in their manager to come and say, look, hey, look, you know, stuff going on. And so the empathy reflecting back feelings, you know, that must be pretty tough for you. You know, to be looking after and worried about your dad like that, and 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 your mum's uh, struggling. Like, how are you going? And and like, what support and resources uh, have you got? You, you see there that I'm keeping, in a sense, I, I think of a platform. You know, I'm creating a platform of safety where their feelings can just land, and then I'm validating them and inviting them to feel heard, listened to, and then know that they're you know safe. And then if they don't know what to do, then I might make an I statement, which might be, look, do you feel that you need a bit of space in time? Do you, do you feel that there'd be a need to sort of change your work uh, at the moment so you can kind of just free up some time? You, you see there, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting them into kind of making mm. the decision that would work for them. And, and they'd maybe say, yeah, look, you know, maybe... Like it looks like they're going into hospital on Fridays. You know, that would be pretty helpful if I could just free up some Fridays, maybe for the next two or three weeks. Okay, cool. You know, let's do that. Um, how, how do you want to look after your work, uh, your workload? You know, how can, you know, either me or the team, you see? Yeah. You, you do the I 
and others when you've given a person space to work through the situation for them first. And I guess everybody, you know, no two situations are the same. Everyone's an individual. So that bringing it to them, you're going to get more to the right solution or the right support. Whereas if you give the III, you might give the wrong solution that worked for someone else, but not work for that individual. Yeah, yeah. And, and you see, it can be really stressful for somebody, you know, it's like, oh, you know he goes home then to his partner and and like what did your boss say well well, you know he's given me fridays off well you don't want fridays off you want like (laughs) it's like why didn't you tell him oh look i i didn't know what to say you know and it's you know i'm just making this up because it can be you know it can be pretty stressful when when people are going through these kinds of things yeah but the main thing you know is for managers to recognize that you know it's not their problem to solve now we can have it then a long conversation if, if let's say someone has taken the mickey and so one of the things i talk about with managers is what do you do in situations where and and, and some managers actually think that people are weaponizing mental health with things like you know they're underperforming they pull the anxiety card mm. like oh here we go and so you know I, I teach managers how to work through that kind of situation brains just another body part and helping the person to develop some self-awareness around you know where they're at and what their needs are have you actually had a diagnosis the other issue is you know if a manager does create some mental and emotional safety between personal issues and performance issues and the person doesn't actually take responsibility for themselves and do some of the things they might need to do. Again, there needs to be some accountability around that. And again, in the workshops, I teach how to do that in an appropriate way. It's all about education. That's the message I'm getting about understanding. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A couple of areas that I wanted to cover off with you, Bill, because I'd be an absolute mug not to cover it off of your expertise is stress mastery and mindfulness, which I think are probably similar sorts of pieces. Mm. But, you know, many of us suffer with stress and burnout at work, particularly, you know, some roles have peaks in the year where it's really stressful. And we know that that period's coming. What would be your advice to people to deal with stress and, and mindfulness to be able to navigate those times of their life? So one of the things that I uh, teach is that in any moment in time, we can essentially have this scale of like one to 10 of my energy level. So how am I feeling at the moment? What's my energy like? So six to 10 is what I call energized. Four to five is feeling empty. And then one to three is feeling exhausted. And, you know, we vary from exhausted, empty, energized. We vary like that all the time. You know, welcome to being human. We have mood variability, energy variability. Mood is a combination of thoughts and feelings, which is, you know, energy level. So let's say, for example, you start the day and, you know, you do an hour and a half uh, with, with meetings back to back. It's a pretty solid meeting. And let's say, you know, there's some things that have come out of that that's maybe things aren't going so well and your energy goes down to like about a four or five. Now, you've got to be really mindful. Okay, okay, this is the way I'm feeling now because if you don't do anything to nurture your energy, what will happen is let's say you go into another meeting or, you know, doing some work or you pick up calls and stuff, such as, and if you start then going down into a three or a two and start being emotionally exhausted and then you go the rest of the day, And then on your way home, whether you're commuting in public transport or in the car and you keep your energy low and you don't build up your uh, energy again, 
then you get home and you're depleted and you have, you're cranky yeah. or, you know, you're not a nice person. And so we've got to be consciously aware of our energy. So if you're getting down into empty or exhausted, what do I need to do? So there's four fundamental energy sources, physical, right, move your body, grow, grab some water, have a bite to eat, whatever the case may be. So that would be uh, physical or mental. So mental would be like if you've got to do creative work and you're just feeling drained and you're not in a good place for it, then maybe just do some rinky-dink admin work or, or stuff that's not overtaxing you mentally. Or emotionally, if you're just feeling emotionally sort of drained, what are you going to do to kind of get yourself up? Maybe how good is this? Or, you know, go talk to somebody, shift yourself emotionally to get your energy back up. Or the fourth area is purpose and meaning. And when people don't have purpose and meaning in their work and they're just grinding it out every day and they don't find just the absolute fundamentals, like I just show up at work because I care about other human beings and I want to be a nice person. Simple as that. So stress, there's a guy uh, here in Australia whose name is Nick Petrie and he makes the difference between pressure and stress. So pressure is just the pressure of work and life and, you know, getting things done. But he makes a really good distinction. I, I kind of like it. And that is stress is then when we start ruminating, you know, did I do that right? What do they think of me? I made that mistake. You know, shit, I'm going to get the sack or, you know, they're going to demote me. Um, you know, what's for dinner tonight? You know, the kids are just driving me nuts. And what about the incident? How's my dad? <laughs> and if we got all that kind of ruminating going on, then that's not useful. And so one of the useful values of mindfulness work, and I shared this the other day and, and uh, these guys said, yeah, we do something similar. So one of the things I do is I wake, let's say at 5.30 or 6. And then first of all, the alarm goes off. Then uh, I set another one for uh, 5.45 because I like to have 15 minutes of snooze. <laughs> and, and then what I do is I use the snooze to immediately start thinking positive. Because I used to, a lot of time, wake up with negative thoughts going on and all this kind of stuff. But then now I, I do gratitude, you know, I'm grateful that I'm alive and grateful that I can give my gifts and, you know, just thinking sort of positive stuff, you know. Sometimes I'll fall back to sleep, then the alarm goes off again 15 minutes later, and then I just fall out of bed onto the floor, on the carpet, cross-legged, and then I just do a mindfulness uh, activity for about 15 minutes. Now, all that is, there's huge amounts of, you know, things you can do, but just make it an incredibly simple. That The reason for closing the eyes, I mean, you can close your eyes or just stare, but it's it's very, it's, it's good to be focused because if your eyes are all over the place, you get distracted. And then you just uh, want to be focusing the breath at the nostril. So you close your mouth because nose breathing is huge amount of research now is highlighting how incredibly important nose breathing is. So you shut your mouth, breathe through the nose, so I do a process that I call R&R, &R, which is receive and release. So receiving love and then releasing fear or releasing worry or rece releasing pains I might have in my body, whatever the case may be. I just do that for five, 10 minutes. Maybe I'll, I'll be starting to think and plan around the day. Sometimes I have no thoughts. Sometimes I have thoughts. And then at the end of 15 minutes, because the alarm is set, that's the finish. And then off to the shower and away we go.
talking to you, my breathing changes as you're talking through it. I'm, I start breathing through my nose and I start holding <laughs> my breath a little bit and letting it out. It's, mm. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try it. I'm very much, uh, you know, need to leave at 10 past eight, get up at eight, roll out of bed at two minutes past eight, quickly get dressed, washed out the door person. So it's going to be a bit of a culture change for me, but I'm going to give that a try. Yeah. And the thing to, to sort of recognize with these things is, is they take time. They're, they're a new habit. When I used to have a long commute to the office, I used to find that the that commute home, I would naturally decompress during that hour and a half in the car mm-hmm. with my eyes open, I might add. Yes. It used to just naturally decompress. But when I only lived five minutes from the office, you didn't have time to switch off and decompress. You'd very much walk through the front mm. door still wired and in the zone. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And I'll just touch on the other uh, theme that you'd mentioned there that's, that's often a struggle for a lot of people, and it's this whole issue of burnout. And it comes back to the, the same combo of, of stress and burnout. And, and often people will be burning out because they deplete themselves way through that empty region and exhausted region. And so this is why you know, in any moment in time throughout the day, I'm conscious of it. I, I know my energy's gone down. It's like, okay, what do I need to do? Either, you know, I've got to smash through some work and get it done, and then I'll go and do something else, or I'll take a break uh, there and then to get my energy up. So I'm constantly, constantly mindful. And I think that then if we look after our mental and emotional energy, and, and then that'll then therefore support our mental, emotional health and fitness, that then we can, you know, resource ourselves to be more effective to deal with things that we find stressful. And then probably a whole other conversation, Matt, to kind of a whole bunch of strategies to to talk about how to deal with anxiety and how to deal with depression, you know, because they're, you know, they're two biggies that a lot of people really struggle with. Oh, well, Bill, it's been absolutely amazing. You've really opened my eyes to certainly the way I behave and the things that I think um, and the way I come across to other people, particularly the sympathy and the empathy piece, I think is very, very eye-opening. Um, I have no sympathy for you, though, because I'm about to put you through the yes-no game. Oh, good. Okay, <laughs> yes. Oh, now, see, so right there uh, with the uncertainty of that, I could do anxiety, which is, oh, my God, yeah. you know, I don't, either A, I hate these things, or B, I might fail. Or I can do excitement. Yeah which is oh well yeah you look excited you've got the excitement (laughs) face going on so basically the way this works is i'm going to ask you just some random questions throughout a 60 second period there'll be some intense music playing in the background to add a little bit of stress and basically you can answer any way you like but you cannot say yes no or any variants of yes no and we'll see how you get on now yes no is the most used word in the english language most used words should I say, in the English language. So it's quite a challenge not to reply yes, no. You up for this? Yes. So, Bill, 60 seconds are loaded on the clock. You can say anything you like, but not yes or no. Is chocolate considered a type of candy? It's a beautiful thing. I love 70% lint. What are the main ingredients used to make chocolate? Cocoa is such a, an important ingredient, there should be less sugar. Uh, does cocoa come from cocoa beans? As far as I know, it does. And one of the countries that grows it is Colombia. Do penguins live in the Arctic? 
they do and there are also some uh not far well not far from where i'll future live in victoria are you sure last time i was there they were there (laughs) (laughs) is the eiffel tower in the united states Last time I saw a picture of the Eiffel Tower. You did it, Bill! (laughs) You did it! I like your strategy of answer as long as possible so there's less questions firing at you. Very good strategy. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. True pro. No stress. Yeah, you were all over Mm. it. Bill, thank you for doing that. Whereabouts can people buy your book or learn more about the fantastic work that you're doing? Because I think there'll be people that listen today that want to know more because only so much we can cover in this hour. Mm -hmm. So where can they go? Uh, Yeah. So first of all, the book's available on Amazon, Safe Conversations for Work and Life. Uh, uh, My website is inspirelearning.au. People can also find me on LinkedIn, inspirelearning.au, gives you an overview of what I do. The main purpose of the book is actually to you know, run the workshops. They're three-hour workshops to teach uh, leaders, managers, and team members how to notice the signs, You know, first of all, teaching them about mental health awareness, and then also noticing the signs where someone might be struggling, and then be able to have the conversation in a caring, person-centered way. No telling, no fixing, and no judging. I do recommend Safe Conversations for Work and Life. It's really well positioned and it's really easy to follow as well. And for someone like me who sometimes struggles to absorb the written word, I didn't find that with this book. You've hooked me, which is probably your marketing plan. (laughs) Thanks very much, Matt. Wonderful. Today's chat with Bill Carson dropped some serious wisdom nuggets. And here's what really stuck with me as key takeaways. Change is a roller coaster of emotions, right? Knowing how folks react both positively and negatively makes the difference when change hits. Ever tried flipping a bad mood to a good one? It's hard, isn't it? Bill talked about shifting your mindset, focusing on a positive mindset and keeping check of emotions. He spoke about the four W's of change management. They were great. The why, the what, the how, and the what ifs. They are like a roadmap for making changes in the workplace. Well worth jotting down in your book and thinking about that when you deploy change in your workplace. Now, for real, when change hits, people's emotions matter. Ignoring how it messes with folks' feelings can crank up the stress levels big time. Factoring this into the planning stage and keep emotional wellness first will reduce the impact of change and bode well for a successful and sustained change. Talking mental health? Are you? It's a big deal. Making it safe to chat about tough stuff builds networks that really have your back. It's okay not to be okay. Creating safe spaces for real talk is huge. Being open and raw helps build trust and bonds with other people. Validating feelings. Yep, it's legit. Being genuine and respecting how others feel makes a safe zone for these conversations. Now, leaders' empathy is critical. Having empathy and backing up your teams dealing with their stuff, that's leadership gold. That's true leadership. Empathy over sympathy. That's a massive message that I got from Bill today. It's about understanding others' concerns or worries without making it about your own tales. That's how you really connect. It's so easy to fall into that trap of the I, I, I. Think you, you, you. 
Now, balancing stress and mindfulness and knowing when to take some time for you, it's super important for staying cool, collected and focused. Leading a team means also holding folks accountable and having their backs when mental health stuff comes into play. In my career, so often I felt let down in this space. There's so much that can be said for a leader who shows compassion, understanding and is supportive, even when it's a hindrance to the business plan. Finding ways to handle all of the mental and emotional energy, that's the key to handling tough situations better. And you know what? Resources for learning are out there. Bill's book and workshops on mental health are top-notch tools and the links are down in the show notes. Overall, today's talk hammered home the need for empathy, being real, staying mindful and giving space for everyone's emotions, both at work and in your personal life. Bill's insights on mental health, seriously on point. I hope you found some value and some food for thought as much as I did. That brings us to an end of this episode of the Ever Celine podcast. Thank you so much to Bill for joining us all the way from gorgeous Sydney, Australia today uh, and giving us an insight into mental health and well-being, stress, and just basically thinking about others, empathy, sympathy. Absolutely amazing. Really enjoyed it. I've learned so much. Hopefully you did too. If you like the sound of today's show and would like to hear more, please subscribe and follow the Everseline podcast at everseline.com. We'll also find episodes that you might have missed. If you can, please take a moment to like and review the Everseline podcast on the platform that you listened on. I'd be extremely grateful and your review really does mean so much and I appreciate every single one. If you're on the social search for the Everseline podcast, give us a follow and let me know your lean efforts because I'd love to hear all about them. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget, Everseline. You know it makes sense. The Everseline podcast is researched, produced, and recorded by Matt Sims. Visit everseline.com to find out more. Yeah.